Were you guys ready for the word this morning? Hallelujah. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. Lord, I thank you that as we study your word today, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would be able to see truths that we'd never fully seen before, and not just have an intellectual understanding, Father, but Lord, that it would be, uh, that you would reveal it to our hearts. Lord, we want to grow. We want to grow closer to you. We want to be more knowledgeable of who you are and of your word, and I just thank you this morning that we would just be ready to receive your word, and then we would grow, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to go ahead this morning and get started on our series through the book of Hebrews. And as you know, if you've been here for a while, we go through the, the books of the Bible, we go through verse by verse. And I'm going to know that's a good way to go through the Bible because you don't get to skip the hard stuff. You got to deal with it all. And today we're going to be starting with a book that, I, uh, if you've done any studying on it, it's kind of interesting. When I was growing up and, and even uh, young Young as I was uh, learning to be a pastor, I was always told the book of Hebrews was written by Paul. And then if you actually study it, it turns out nobody knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's uh, traditionally been ascribed to Paul, but the, the truth is the book of Hebrews has a lots of unknowns and a lots of uh, kind of unique things about it. First, it's not like most letters in the Bible. This one actually starts out more like a written sermon and then ends like a letter. So there's no greeting. If you look at most of the letters in the Bible, it starts with a greeting to whoever they're speaking to. No greeting in the book of Hebrews. But it ends with a salutation like a letter would end with. So it's kind of strange in how that all works out. Most scholars believe that it was probably written, though, uh, to be read aloud as a sermon. The, the author actually intended it to be read aloud like a sermon, even though he was writing it to a specific group of people. Truth is, too, is we're not certain about what prompted this letter. You know, basically, what was the purpose of this letter? And I'm not talking about content, but I'm talking about what was the catalyst. You know, there was a, there was a whole mess going on in the, in the Corinthian church, which is why Paul wrote the letters to the Corinthians. We don't really know what the catalyst was for the book of Hebrews. Uh, who, we don't know who wrote it for sure. We don't even know when it was written for sure. The truth is, there's just a lot of unknowns about the book of Hebrews. But I'll take you through some of the current theories, and we'll start with the authorship of the book of Hebrews. Like I said, it's, it's unsure who wrote it, but there's actually many theories. Some people uh, argue that Paul wrote it. There are others that would argue that Luke wrote it. Others would argue that Apollos wrote it. And others would argue that Barnabas wrote it. And those are just some of the main ones. I've even read that, that Clement of Rome could have wrote it. But the idea that Paul wrote it actually has a very, very old history. It's probably the, the, the oldest history of, of the authorship of this letter. And the truth is, this has never been decisively disproved that Paul didn't write the letter. And as early as the second century in Alexandria, the early church fathers, and Alexandria I believe is where Apollos was, but the early church fathers, they, uh, they attributed this letter to Paul. But if you look at the modern consensus, uh, uh, modern consensus of scholars today in the 20th century or past the 20th century, then you're going to see that most people don't believe that Paul actually wrote the book of Hebrews. Although many Roman Catholics uh, scholars would still argue that, that, that Paul wrote it. But another author that may have some really old support is Barnabas. As early as the 4th century, there seemed to be some indication that people believed that, that Barnabas wrote this letter. Jerome of Striden, who was also known as St. Jerome, and this is somewhere around uh, 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 
345 to 419 AD is when he lived, he pointed out that Hebrews was received as Paul's, yet many considered it to be the work of Barnabas, Luke, or Clement. So this is early as the, what, the 4th century, uh, late 4th century, early 5th, that people are already thinking that maybe Paul didn't write it, somebody else did. Um, Martin Luther argued that Apollos wrote it. And many argue that Luke wrote it due to the similarities and styles between the way that, that, the, that Luke wrote his letters and the way that Hebrews is written. It's actually, that's probably one of the biggest things it says is not false because it's not written like Paul, normally, <laughs> like Paul normally wrote. So since we don't know who the author is, it actually makes it kind of hard to figure out when the letter was actually written as well. It was probably written no later than 95 AD because that's when Clement of Rome quoted it in 1 Clement except for now the date of when First Clement was written is in question as well, so uh, we're not really sure. But probably the latest it was written was 95 AD. It was likely written after 70 AD, because if you read the book of Hebrews, you see that there's a lot of stuff about the sacrificial system and about sacrifices and priests and all that stuff. But we know the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, so if sacrifices already weren't happening, the temple was already destroyed when it was written, you would probably be some notice of that. You probably wouldn't be making such a big case about sacrifices and that stuff still going on if it wasn't still going on because the temple was destroyed. So probably after 70 AD. That poses a problem, though, because, or sorry, before 70 AD. Uh, if Paul was the author, it would have to have been written before 67 AD, because Paul died in 67 AD. So there's all this uh, questionable uh, mist about when it was written. So we don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it was written. Recipients, who was this book written to? Don't know that either. Did you know that the prefix in the, in the beginning of this letter to the Hebrews didn't get added until uh, late second century. <laughs> that wasn't part of the original letter. That was added a couple hundred years later. Uh, it turns out that uh, we do think, though, it was written to a specific group of people. And as early as the, the late second century, they were already ex determining who they thought this was written to. This was written to the Hebrews. But the problem is, is, is we say it's written to the Hebrews, but we don't know what that means either. We know that it seems like that there was a relationship with this group of people because of the way he writes. Like I said, it ends like a letter. So it seems like there was some sort of relationship. There was some sort of history with the author and its readers. Um, not like, say, First and Second Peter, which is written to be to a more general Christian audience. First and Second Peter was written to a specific church, but more to the church at large. There were probably Jewish Christians because of the subject matter. But some have argued that, no, it was actually Gentile Christians. And no, some have argued, no, it was actually a mix of both Gentiles and Jewish Christians. I tend to think, based on the subject matter, it was probably written to Jewish Christians. And the reason why is because the quotations from the Old Testament deal with the priesthood and the sacrificial system, Moses, etc. All those things that it's talking about, this is stuff that Jewish Christians would have had a very in-depth knowledge of, whereas the uh, Gentile Christians more than likely would not have that same. They wouldn't even understand what he was talking about. And then we come to the purpose. So we don't know, really know who it was written to. And then we come to the purpose. Well, and what I mean by purpose, like I said, is not the, the content of the letter. We can obviously see what he's talking about. But what started it? What was the catalyst? So some say, well, if it was written to Gentile Christians, 
then the purpose of the letter was to, to show them that Christianity and ultimately Jesus Christ was supreme to all other religions at the time, uh, specifically Judaism. If it was written to Jewish Christians, which, like I said, it seems to me that that's likely what it was written to, and I think it's kind of the consensus in the community, although not 100%, it was written to basically uh, ensure that the Jewish Christians of the time weren't slipping back into Judaism. They weren't abandoning Christianity to slip back into Judaism, because really the, 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 the focus of this letter is talking about why Jesus Christ and Christianity is supreme to the old sacrificial system, the old priesthood systems, and Judaism. That's the main focus of this letter. But like I said, even though we don't know who wrote it, even though we don't know who specifically it was written to, we don't know when it was written, and even though we don't really know why it was written, we do know that the content, content in it is uh, one of the most, uh, I would say, detailed of the relationship between the old and the new covenant. It really goes into detail about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And even though we don't know these things about it, it doesn't diminish the importance of this letter or the application that we can have in our lives today. This book primarily exalts the finished work of Jesus Christ. It gives evidence multiple times we're going to see today that Jesus is in fact God. It illustrates that his death was given as a substitute for our own, and it describes his role as a priest, his priesthood. We're going to see in this book that the word better is used 13 times to describe the superiority of Jesus and his salvation over the Hebrew system of religion. You're going to see the word perfect used 14 times in the Greek, and it's to demonstrate our perfect standing before God, which could never be accomplished through the law the Levitical priesthood, or through animal sacrifice. And finally, it is going to demonstrate in great detail the relationship between the Old and the New Covenant. That sound good to you guys? You guys ready to learn about some of this stuff? I think I'm fine. What's that? <laughs> you know, it's funny when I was thinking about trying to determine when this thing was written because we're not sure the, the date I'm like, man, I, I don't know how we could figure this out for sure. But I'm like, I know. We'll just ask Bob. He was probably there. Who wrote it, Bob? <laughs> just kidding. Cliff might have been there, though. <laughs> Praise God. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So as I was studying this, I, I learned that this opening paragraph may be one of the top, most stylistically put together paragraphs in the New Testament. Apparently, this is an excellent piece of writing if you're someone who knows about writing. The first paragraph of Luke is what I've heard is the only other paragraph, first paragraph in the New Testament that has the same uh, skill and, and just style that this paragraph has and, and, and how it is written. Matter of fact, the, the scholars say that because of how it is written, it indicates that the writer actually was a very skilled writer. He was very smart. He was, he was very good at writing, very good at persuading people. So, um, and that's one of the reasons why people think that Luke may have written it because the beginning of Luke is written with the same skill of uh, authorship, writership. What is the skill of writing called? Does anybody know? 
Penmanship, maybe? No, penmanship is how, how wordcraft. Word. Anyway, the guy's a good writer. Um, this is something that I read about. It says he uses, the author uses rhetorical techniques such as alliteration, meter, rhythm, phonetic and semantic parallelism, syntactical and semantic repetition, and chiasm or chiasm or... I don't even know what all these are. Apparently, the writer of Hebrews is much smarter than I am and a much better writer. But apparently, it is just excellent writing. And the beginning starts with some really important doctrinal truths that we need to understand. One, we see that God speaks. Long ago, my clicker doesn't, my pointer doesn't work, but many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So one, we see that, that God actually speaks to us. And this is important because uh, uh, the implication from that, which is the second truth, is that in order to know God, uh, he has to reveal himself to us. Now, I'm not talking about to know about God because the, the, the world testifies to the reality that there is of God. Huh? Oh, that's my, uh, <laughs> that's reflections. That's different. Anyway, um, the, the, I'm not talking about uh, knowing about God because the Bible says that the world testifies there is a God, right? The mountains, the trees, the stars, everything says that there is a God. But to know God, to have a relationship with God, he has to reveal himself to us. And he does by speaking to us. And first he spoke to us through the prophets. But in these days, in these last days, he speaks to us through his son. The third thing that we see that's a very important doctrinal truth to Christians is that Jesus was whom he, God created the entire world. God, Jesus was there at creation. If you think about this, in order, and this is just some, some simple logic, in order for God to create the world through Jesus Christ, he had to be there. In order for him to be there, we have two things that happens. One, he has to be there before creation, which means that he can't be part of creation because if he was there before creation is created through him, then he has to pre precede creation. And two, in order to be there, he has to be eternal. These are just more evidence that, that Jesus Christ actually is God. And we're going to go see this over and over and over in this first book, uh, first chapter of the book of Hebrews that, that just really hammers home the point that Jesus Christ is God. And a lot of people have problems with this. You know, they can't understand how there can be God the Father and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. How it's, and, and I was just talking to someone this morning about people arguing and saying no, because it says in the, in, the, in the Bible that God is one. And I say, yeah, I agree with that too. God is one, but he is also three per persons. So Jesus is God, the Father is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, but God, is the, God the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. It's one God, three persons. And I know that's difficult to understand because we don't have any real frame of reference for it, but was it a year or two ago? I think I did like a five-week a five series or five, weeks, five or six-week series on the Trinity if you want to go back on our webpage and learn about how, what the Bible says about that. But the reality is, is that Jesus is eternal and he was there when the world was created. He actually created the world. And in order for that to be a reality, he has to be God as well. Amen. So that's the third one. One, so there was that the uh, first uh, truth is that God speaks to us. The second is that in order to have a relationship with him, to know God, he has to reveal himself to us. Jesus is the one who created the world. So these are, these are important uh, doctrinal truths that are, that are important to Christians. It's stuff that we need to know and understand. 
And then the primary purpose of this letter is he begins to demonstrate the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So right now we're starting to see that, yeah, God spoke through the prophets before, but now he's done speaking through the prophets. He's speaking through his son. Previously he spoke through the prophets. Now he speaks through his son because the son is supreme to the prophets in order for God to speak to him. That's the point that he's trying to make. And he says, one thing I think is interesting that he says is in these last days, we are going through on Wednesday nights, we're looking at, you know, end day, end day stuff, end day prophecy. We're talking about the rapture and the day of the Lord and the coming of the Lord and all these things. And one of the things that uh, I keep reiterating to people because everyone thinks that, oh, it's getting worse. The last days are coming. And I say, no, the last days are here. We've been in the last days for several thousand years now, a couple thousand years. It has been the last days, in these last days. And he's speaking to us through Jesus Christ. That's how God speaks to us. And this is why you'll hear me say sometimes that Jesus is perfect theology. If Jesus does it, it's the will of God. If Jesus speaks it, those are God's words. One of the things, and you've heard me say it before, that drives me crazy is when people say God works in mysterious ways. He doesn't. His word makes it very clear how he works. If somebody gets sick and it has cancer and people make excuses for why that this isn't getting dealt with, they go, oh, but God works in mysterious ways. No, God does not want your kid to have cancer or your wife to have cancer. It's not mysterious. You can look through the Bible and you see that God wants his people healed. He wants his people whole. That's why he sent his son Jesus to take care of that stuff. The mystery of God has been made known to us in his son whom he still speaks to us today, amen? And then in verse 3 through 4, he says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and an exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the author continues talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the power that Jesus has. Although Jesus lived as a man for 33 years before he was crucified, he was so much more than just a man. First, it says here that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God. When you see Jesus, you see the glory of God. And like I said, he's the exact imprint of his nature, which is saying that when you see Jesus, you are actually seeing God. And the truth is, you're not seeing a reflection of God. You are actually seeing God. This is another one of those things that makes it clear that Jesus is God. How can you be an exact imprint if you're not the same thing? He is God. And in him, the essence of God is made clear to us. This is what John says in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. And I want you to listen to the words here too because this is more evidence that Jesus is God. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John flat out refers to him as God. The only God who is at the Father's side, which is Jesus, has made him known. So it is through Jesus that we actually get to see God. We get to know God. And that's why Jesus said, if, if you know me, you know the Father. In addition to being part of creation, which we just saw in the last verse 2, it then goes on to say that 
and he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, I got to tell you, if Jesus was just a prophet or a teacher or a good man, that's a pretty impressive feat. Or just a regular old dude to take care of, to uphold the world by his power. The truth is, the only one that's capable of that is God. The only one that has the power to do so would be God, and that is Jesus. And it goes on to say that he made purification for sins. Do you guys know that sin is dealt with? Sin is, sin is a done deal. Nobody's going to hell because of their sin. They're going to hell because they haven't received the free gift of life. Sin has been dealt with. Now, certainly, they're going to, to reap the reward of their sin if they don't receive that free gift. But it's already been dealt with if they'll just accept the payment in their place through Jesus. There is no more purification of sins to be done. And to prove this, Jesus sits down at the right hand of God to declare it finished. And this is important to us even as Christians because this means that if you sin tomorrow, Jesus isn't going back to the cross to deal with that thing you just did. Even your sins that you're going to commit have already been taken care of. He purified sins once when he gave his life on the cross and he sits down at the right hand of the Father declaring it finished. This sitting down was an indication of the completion of the atonement for sin. And then after he died and he rose again and he returned to heaven to sit down in the highest place of honor, that's when this was taken care of. His death accomplished everything that animal sacrifice never could. And then the author finishes this, his sentence here, clearly stating that not only, like you said, you talked about in the last couple of verses that Jesus was, uh, had supremacy over the prophets, but now it says clearly that his, he is, is superior to angels as well. The reality is, is that Jesus was created to rule, but the angels were created as servants. Amen? And the truth is, if you think about this, if you just look at the stuff that we've seen already, Jesus was there during creation. He was part of creation. He upholds the world uh, with, it, with, his, with his power. You have to come to the conclusion that Jesus is superior to all these other things. But the author doesn't stop there. He's going to make a point. In verse 5 through 6, he says, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. You know, I wonder if there was confusion, and just like sometimes there is today, about understanding who Jesus was, the Messiah was, because the same thing we do today, how can he be God and also not be the Father? And the truth is, is like I said, that is difficult to understand. We don't have any frame of reference. There is not something that is two different things. So I imagine that the, the confusion comes from these two different roles because now we're saying, well, wait a minute. How can you, how can you say that he's their creation, he's their creator? But then it says the Father is speaking to the Son. And it's still one God, but there's two different roles with one of the roles being in submission to the other. They one of two different persons, one person being in submission to the other while still being equally God. So he goes on home uh, to hammer at home, know that, that Jesus really is superior to the angels because of which of the angels has he ever said these things? There's no, been no other 
person, being, spiritual being, anything that has the honor of be called, being called God's begotten son. Every single one of us have been adopted into the family and we have the same rights as a, as a, as a begotten son, but none of us can be called begotten sons or daughters. That uh, alone is reserved for Jesus and certainly the angels cannot claim that. So once again, he says, which of the angels has God said these things to and then finally, what I think is interesting is in verse 6, he brings the firstborn of the world. He says, let all God's angels worship him. Just more evidence for the deity of Jesus Christ because our God is a jealous God. He says, put no other gods before me. Don't worship anything ahead of me. Yet he says that the angels are going to worship Jesus. How can that be possible if Jesus wasn't God himself? Not only does Jesus receive worship, but God's the one that set it up that way. And if you want to look deeper at these quotes, I'll just give them to you right now. Uh, the first quote comes from Psalm uh, 2.7. The second quote right here, which says, I'll, I'll be to him a father. That one comes from 2 Samuel 7.14. And then the last one, that all God's angels worship him, that comes from Deuteronomy 32.43, if you want to do a little more research. Then in Hebrews 1, 7 through 9, he continues on making this case about the supremacy of Christ over angels. He says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. In this section, he begins to compare the servanthood of angels versus the eternal dominion or, or uh, Jesus ruling eternally. Of Je this is Jesus Christ's position. Verse 7 is quoted from Psalm 104.4, and it says, He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. And the thing is that angels really don't have any 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 form they're, they're they're spirit beings now we do know that they come to earth and they take on the form of man but in and of themselves they are spirit beings and the scripture says they'll also be able to be made into wind or to fire to perform the will of god for whatever god's purpose he has for them they have the ability to take on other forms like wind and fire and then verse 4 8 through 9 uh, it comes from psalm 45 6 through 7 and it says your throne O god is forever and ever the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness you have loved righteousness and hate wickedness therefore god your god has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your commandment companions we see that when he's speaking of the angels he's talking to them as as servants but when he's speaking of the son uh one if you if you look at this again and and uh for psalm 45 6 through 7 he says therefore god your God has anointed you with oil. Therefore, God, speaking about Jesus, your God, the Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And so once again, we see this reference to Jesus being God. But then we also see that Jesus' throne is enduring and forever. In other words, Jesus is unchanging. And his reign is marked by love of righteousness and hatred of wickedness. And the truth is, is that only Christ uh, contains these characteristics and fullness and is such superior to any other spiritual being. And as a result, it says he is anointed. But it says here that, uh, that you've been anointed with the oil of gladness. And this picture of anointing, if you look in uh, uh, the, the, the Jews, would one, they would anoint their kings with oil. 
And then when priests were to become priests, they would anoint their priests with oil. So this picture serves a dual purpose of where Jesus is not only being uh, anointed as a priest, but he's also being anointed as a king to rule forever. And the main contrast of these two verses that he's trying to show is that angels are mutable. Angels change. Angels serve. But Jesus Christ, he is immutable. He doesn't change. He reigns forever, for eternity. And he continues on in Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And he's continuing to speak about Jesus, and now he's quoting from Psalms 102, 25 through 27. It says, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Now, traditionally, this book of Psalms is actually referring to God the Father. That's what it was written about as God the Father, except for now the author of Hebrews applies it to Jesus Christ. Starting to see a pattern? To deny the deity of Christ can only be done, in my opinion, in two ways. One is ignorance, because you actually haven't looked at what the Word says. More and more when people say, when I see stuff online or people making comments, the Bible never says Jesus is God. I just want to shake them. Have you read the Bible? Because it says it over and over and over. I mean, it's, said it, it's declared at, what, four times just in the first Nine verses, ten verses. So the only two ways you can do it is one, out of ignorance, or two, you're just flat out lying to propagate what you already want to believe. That's your two choices. Because the Bible is very clear on the deity of Jesus Christ. And then once again here, the point of this is to reiterate the eternal nature of the Son. Right, because the earth is going to pass away. It says like a garment. Has anybody ever had really old garments that have been out in the sun? Like maybe have you ever had the top of a, of a of an umbrella, like one of the sun umbrellas here in Arizona, and after a while they get faded, and then you just pull on them a little bit, and they just kind of crumble and tear apart. That's the picture that's being made here. The garments eventually will pass away. The the nicest garment will eventually. Uh, essentially erode and, 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 and become weather damaged and pass away. The earth is like that. But the sun will remain. He never fades. He never becomes damaged. He never becomes less. He never becomes weak. He stays the same because he is eternal. Amen? And he continues on in verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. The answer is none. There's been no other angel that God has said this to. He's only said this to the Son. And this is quoting from Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Another interesting phrase, the Lord says to my Lord, once again referring to the Messiah. 
And this is a reference to the Messiah as he's instructed to sit at the right hand of God. And this was an indication that the Messiah was going to be victorious over all of his enemies. That was the purpose of this psalm, was to show that he would be triumphant over every single one of his enemies. And this seat was always reserved for Jesus Christ. And it can't be uh, claimed by any other created being. It's only for him alone. One of the things you'll notice when it talks about the angels in the Bible, there's a couple places that'll show that, that even the greatest of angels, the archangels, they'll stand before God. But not once did they ever see, say that they sat at his side. Because the reality is, is that to sit at his side is to, to demonstrate equality with God. And the only person that has that, that honor, that, that ability, is Jesus Christ. And then finally, in verse 14, it says, are they, all not, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You see, as we just read, Jesus is the only one that has the right to sit at the right hand of the Father, to sit co-eternally and co-equally with the Father. But angels serve a completely different purpose. Remember, what he's trying to do is demonstrate that Jesus is far superior to angels. And angels, their purpose is to minister. Their purpose is to serve. And what's cool about this is they're there to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They're there to help and minister those who are to be saved. They are, this should be an encouragement to all of us because it means that God is sending his angels to, be, to minister and to serve us, to help us. But like I said, the ultimate goal of this first part of the letter is really to drive home the supremacy of Jesus Christ over angels. Angels were made to be servants. Angels are mutable. They're changing but Jesus Christ was meant to rule and to reign. He is immutable. He is unchanging. Amen? That's about it for this first section. I hope you got a lot out of it. Um, the truth is, is that uh, over the next several weeks, we're going to be going through this, and there's a lot of good stuff in here. There's a lot of stuff that's going to help you tie together the Old Testament and Jesus Christ, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and I would encourage you to read ahead, write down any questions you have. Hopefully they'll be answered during the messages. And uh, uh, let's look forward to a good few weeks of studying this because we've got a lot to learn. It's going to be much like today, a little bit heavy, talking about the Old Testament and, and doctrine and theology. But uh, the truth is, is that's how we learn as we dig into this stuff. So I hope you guys are encouraged and blessed by it. But other than that, let's go ahead and bow our heads as we close the message.